Cultural Literacy, part three of three. Prophetic or prejudice? I'll admit that that title's kind of edgy, but I think it suits our subject matter and the series really well. Um, and for your reference, you can see part one and part two um, just to get a little bit more context for our discussion. As we continue in our exercise of cultural exegesis, of cultural literacy, I'm excited to consider Jonah with you. It's a short um, Old Testament text, only four chapters. Um, we don't start with a lot of context, so commentaries are helpful in understanding it. That and considering it within the context of other Old Testament passages, right? Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, and this passage is probably from somewhere between 780 um, to 740 BC. Considering this is the Old Testament, prophets still had a fairly unique role in the community of God, um, or more unique than maybe than now. Anyway, uh, given there's no internet, no mass production of religious text, and there's no institutionalized system of education that will allow for people to uh, become more intimately acquainted with the scriptures at a fairly low cost, like Christian education, Christian charter school, that kind of thing, prophets represented a direct line of communication with God. These were people that God spoke through. Prophets told laymen and women what God had to say. To be sure, it wasn't a small responsibility. Operating in this role was of great significance. And given the tumultuous nature of Israel's uh, relationship with God in the Old Testament, prophets were paramount in people knowing what needed to be done in order to please God. Chapter one opens up, um, this is chapter one of Jonah, by the way, I should be more explicit. Chapter one opens up with a simple enough idea. God wants Jonah to prophesy to the city of Nineveh, which is in Assyria. In order to do this, he would need to leave his home near Nazareth and go to Assyria. It would have been a 500-mile trek, approximately. But here's where things get interesting. As far as 500 miles would have been during that time, ironically, Jonah is resolved about going in the opposite direction, even further, to a town called Tarshish. That's 2,500 miles away, approximately. It would seem that Jonah wants no part in a missionary journey to Nineveh, choosing to flee from God instead. But life isn't that simple. I mean, you can't run from God, certainly not if you're a prophet. In the midst of running from God, Jonah experiences a sequence of divinely orchestrated setbacks to his plan including a powerful sea storm. Uh, you see that in Jonah 1 verse 4. A schism on board the ship between him and his shipmates. You see that in chapter 1 verses 7 and 8. Um, being thrown overboard by his shipmates. You see that in verse 15. Uh, and finally, being swallowed alive by a fish. That's in verse 17. And that fish wouldn't vomit him up for three days. And you see that in verse 17. You see it again in Jonah 2 verse 10. After being unwilling initially, Jonah decides to go on this trip and preaches to the Ninevites. And as it turns out, Nineveh decides to repent. I mean, happy ending, right? 
Absolutely not. The book actually closes with Jonah expressing his frustration to God about the whole ordeal. Part of the reason Jonah was mad was because he was being racist. I mean, straight up. We'll talk about why in just a second, but let's start with that. The book of Jonah is about a racist prophet. And it doesn't really matter if we're talking about the attitudinal or affective or emotional dimension of racism. Um, That's something we usually refer to as prejudice, meaning it's in our mind or it's in our heart. Or we could also be talking about the behavioral dimension of racism. Many refer to this as discrimination, meaning it affects how we behave. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the emotional or the affective or attitudinal side or the behavioral side, um, and there are many different definitions of racism. Either way, our prophet Jonah isn't reflecting the heart of God. He's being straight up racist. I mean, I should probably note, though, as a minor point, ethnic groups existed in this time period, but racial groups didn't. Um, That doesn't really undermine our point. Either way, he seems to have this like rooted prejudice in his heart to people in this particular group, the Ninevites. But doesn't that give you goosebumps? Jonah's being kind of racist here. I love what one commentary described as the pious bias. Um, All of my training is in social psychology. So I do enjoy a good discussion on bias, um, meaning a pronounced inclination towards someone or something that meets certain conditions, right? Quite simply though, people who identify as men and women of faith, myself included, can frequently fall victim to a bias where we think men and women in the Bible, particularly main characters or protagonists, are there because they represent men and women of exemplary faith. Meaning, if you're a main character, you must be a great person. You're a great example of a Christian, a man or a Christian woman. Um, I mean, after all, how else would you get to author a book in the Bible or have a portion of scripture named after you. Certainly, all of these men and women must be saints, right? I mean, that's the pious bias. And it's particularly pertinent concerning a passage like Jonah. Um, One point that's really resonated with me as I've looked at different commentaries is that Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet that the Bible says ran away from God. In that sense, Jonah is better known for his infamy than anything else, especially because we only have four chapters. He was better known for his disobedience and hardness of heart um, than anything else. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to slander the guy. We're all human, myself included. But based on what we know about Old Testament prophets, Jonah is one of a kind in that regard. It's only fitting that we take note. I mean, that's part of reading the situation after all, right? Beyond that, though, as far as I can tell, the man has racism and prejudice in his heart. Again, cultural exegesis, right? All I'm trying to do is read the situation, which I'll get into much more shortly. Um, But the man was a prophet, and he wasn't particularly thrilled about taking this message, taking uh, the message of God to the Ninevites, perhaps because they were Assyrian or perhaps because they weren't Jewish or maybe both. To be fair, though, 
In order to get a better sense of whether or not Jonah was motivated, in part, by racism, we'd have to rule out some alternative explanations. For instance, Jonah may simply be a prophet who wrestled with disobedience more generally speaking. And maybe ethnic background had nothing to do with it. I mean, indeed, if Jonah had this response to every group of people God told them to preach to, um, God told him to reach out to, Jews included, we could hardly say that he's being racist or prejudiced. We would just say that he's being disobedient or he's being obstinate, which is also kind of rebellion to God, but it's a different flavor. It's a different kind. It's a different type. But according to 2 Kings 14, you can look at verse 25, it certainly appears Jonah was willing to prophesy to the Jews. I mean, the flip side is we don't actually know how Jonah responded to God prior to prophesying to the Jews. We only know that it's something that he eventually did, according to the writer of 2 Kings. I mean, somehow, though, I have difficulty imagining that Jonah fled Nazareth every time God told him to go prophesy, although that's certainly a possibility. I mean, if that's how Jonah thought about prophesying to the Jews, then why live in Nazareth at all? I'm ruling this out. My impression is that it's more likely his response had something to do with God telling him to prophesy to the Ninevites. Now, there's also the possibility Jonah didn't want to go down this trek because it was extremely far. But again, that's also highly unlikely. Jonah was so resistant to the idea of God's plan for him to preach to the Ninevites that he was willing to leave his home near Nazareth to trek to Tarshish. At 2,500 miles away, approximately, that journey was five times further than the one to Nineveh, which was about 500 miles. Given it's five times further, I would imagine it's more costly as well. With this in mind, it's doubtful the distance or the cost of the journey were primary motivated Jonah's disinterest in preaching to the people of Nineveh. I'm ruling this out too. In reading the full text, I think it's safe to say at this point, our prophet Jonah was motivated at least in part by racism. Albeit with only four chapters, um, admittedly, we don't have very much information, right? Um, what's interesting about commentaries on Jonah, though, is that some scholars actually don't believe Jonah had a repentant heart throughout the text, including the final chapter. If you notice how the passage reads, it's kind of like catching a movie halfway through, um, which has a sudden and unexpected ending, which leaves you with questions. It's not entirely clear how or if Jonah reconciled his uh, walk with God after this whole ordeal. In chapter 4, you certainly don't get the vibe Jonah was happy with God, but we really don't know what happens after that. I'll get to my observations, though. Observation number one. The Assyrians were merciless killers, and Jonah was probably no stranger to that. It's true. The Assyrians were the dominant power of the Middle East from 900 to early 600 BC, approximately. 
And historical artifacts can only leave us to assume they, in essence, rewrote everything their contemporaries knew about human torture and imperial conquest. Historians believe that the Assyrians were responsible for ruthless tactics, like forcing prisoners to grind the bones of their comrades, ripping the tongues from the mouths of prisoners, raping all the women of the city before taking them captive. Beyond that, they regularly cut off noses, they cut off ears, they cut off fingers and other appendages, in addition to impaling soldiers on stakes and or lighting them on fire and letting them burn. One particularly unpleasant military tactic they were well known for was burying prisoners in the desert sand up to their shoulders. They would then they would then bound the man's mouth and leave him there to die. How long do you live buried in sand with no water? A week, maybe two weeks? While all of this may seem extremely arbitrary from an imperial perspective, it was efficient, effective, and practical. Although this isn't the information age or the social media generation, word still travels fast during this time period. Consider the Israelites' stunning victory over the Egyptians in Exodus. You can see that in Exodus 14, verses 26 through 30. If you read the passages that follow, Israel's adversaries had heard many things concerning that military account. For example, you can look at Joshua 2 as well as Joshua 9. These are groups that actually said, we heard what happened to you and with, uh, with the Egyptians. And that was only one battle. Imagine if you're the Assyrians and you vanquished all of the neighboring cities within the span of a few decades using merciless uh, tactics like the one I described. Not only is it quite likely that Jonah was aware of how ruthless and merciless the Assyrians were, but it's even possible he lost someone he cared dearly about at their hands. I mean, if that's the case, I mean, it may not be, but let's say it was just for the sake of the argument. If that's the case, it would certainly be hard not to make this personal, right? In chapter four, Jonah shares a little bit of his thoughts with God. He says he knew that the Ninevites would repent if he prophesied to them. Either he believed he was a particularly convincing prophet, he truly believed in the power of God to stir their hearts, or maybe some combination of the two. But the Ninevites repenting should be good news, right? Not quite. This is my impression. I don't get the vibe Jonah felt they were deserving of God's grace. I don't get the vibe Jonah felt they deserved God's mercy after mercilessly killing so many people. I mean, to modernize this a bit, maybe it would be the equivalent of sharing the gospel message with ISIS terrorists, knowing they're plotting suicide bombings not too far from your home. The gut reaction is probably, no way, anybody but them. This is where we find Jonah trying to reconcile his responsibility as a prophet, delighting in the repentance of men, while very much wanting wrath and judgment for a group of people he doesn't have a flattering impression of, the Assyrians. What kind of people 
deserve salvation, right? What types of people deserve the forgiveness of sins? Shouldn't forgiveness be reserved for people who are generally good as opposed to a group of people as awful as the Assyrians? Of course, the answer is, um, you know, God is interested in saving these people. That's why God sent Jonah. Uh, but it was still something that I'm sure he wrestled with, right? There's another point here worth considering, too, uh, particularly because this passage is from the Old Testament. Observation number two. Nineveh's repentance would make an unrepentant Israel look really, really bad. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel wrestles with obedience to God. Between being disobedient to God and having an unrepentant heart, Israel wrestled continuously with the Lord. This passage takes place a few decades before uh, the start of the Assyrian captivity. So another way of thinking about this is Israel is only a few decades away from doom at the hands of the people of Nineveh for their unwillingness to repent. At this point, I'm sure Jonah's no stranger to the fact that Israel isn't really moving in a positive direction. The Jews are idolatrous. They're prideful and hard of heart. They're disunified. Their political system is a sham. Their leadership is corrupt. Um, and they have a very contentious relationship with spiritually minded uh, people, uh, particularly influ influential ones like prophets. Geopolitically, Israel during this time is basically a nobody, right? Certainly, they're nothing compared to the likes of the Roman Empire or the Babylonian Empire or the Assyrian Empire. Uh, make no mistake about it. Assyria was a military. The Assyrian Empire was the first empire in the history of mankind, and it was incredibly successful. The Bible makes the opposite point about Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. God clearly did not pick the Jews to be his people because they were the mightiest or the strongest of the earth. We have the mighty city of Nineveh. Just imagine this, right? Cosmopolitan, wealthy, influential, massive, relevant, and highly esteemed. Everybody loves Nineveh, right? Basically, everything that Israel was not. Now, what would happen if the Ninevites turned to God? Would there be some competition now for God's love? Would there be enough blessings to go around? What if God decides to make the Assyrians his chosen people instead? I mean, certainly it would be easier to change the world through the Assyrian Empire than it would a divided Jewish kingdom, right? I mean, the Assyrians, after all, were already changing the world, conquering one adversary at a time. Could it be that maybe our racist prophet is actually wrestling with something much deeper? What if this was simply spite towards a group of people that outwardly appear very, very successful? I mean, to modernize a bit, how about... Um, that Asian-American co-worker with three degrees that seems to flourish at everything they touch, or that Jewish person who owns all the property in your neighborhood and quietly closed on another townhouse over the weekend. I'm talking about they're just bossing, killing the game. 
Now, obviously, I'm appealing to something in social psychology we call positive stereotypes, but I'm illustrating an example. Could it be that Jonah has such a deep for would tell us, yes, in case you're wondering, it's very much possible to have prejudice towards highly successful people too, because those groups are better positioned to compete for resources, you know, relative to other groups in society, including but not limited to uh, stigmatized ones. The one thing the Jews have over Assyria is Yahweh. And now, all of a sudden, God wants Jonah to go prophesy to them. Of course Jonah had it. I mean, heck, if you can go from slitting men's throats and raping their women to hearing the voice of God from a strange man from a foreign country, what exactly is the excuse of Jewish men and women? I don't think Jonah was naive to this. In fact, I think Jonah uh, would have preferred to spend more time at home trying to help the Jews get their act together. When Jonah heard the message from God to go all the way to Nineveh, I'm sure he knew exactly what that meant. I'm sure he was embarrassed for his people. Jonah himself said it. He knew the Ninevites would repent. He says that in uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. As a Jewish man, I'm sure he took great pride in his people and their heritage. The repentance of the Ninevite people... Um, Although a victory of the kingdom of God would be a great embarrassment for the Jews. Let me be very clear. Very, very clear, actually. The book of Jonah is only four chapters. There are many, many things that we don't know and will probably never know. Nevertheless, although much of what we do here is speculate, I don't think that undermines any of the principles we hit on here. If you were alive during 750 BC or so, and you're doing your cultural uh, exegesis, it may go something along the lines of this. Jonah, Jewish. Assyrians or the Ninevites, Gentiles. Jonah, prophet, Assyrians and the Ninevites, merciless killers. Jews hear prophecy every day and are still unrepentant. The Assyrians and the Ninevites, have not received a Jewish prophet, at least not yet. So you might reach the conclusion if Jonah isn't willing to go 500 miles to Nineveh to preach, it would be really hypocritical of a prophet. But if he can go to the Ninevites and preach to this group of merciless killers, rapists and thieves, that would be really, really powerful. Now, let's bring it all together. Uh, let me be clear. I don't think reading situations is a, is, a, is a revolutionary idea. I mean, quite the contrary. We do it pretty regularly when we read books, when we watch movies, when we view television shows, etc. Context is everything. For many reasons, though, we seem disinterested or unwilling to see how present um, or past cultural developments influence living out the gospel in important ways. And we see that, you know, in instances today, but we also see that in examples in the Bible, you know, like uh, Jonah and the Ninevites. I think being culturally literate will only make us more effective as disciples. 
it's not everything. It's not the most important thing, but I do think it's a versatile and relevant skill. I mean, certainly it's better than cultural illiteracy, right? The church doesn't exist in a vacuum, after all. With that in mind, I can't help but feel um, understanding present culture will aid us greatly in understanding how to uh, communicate God's message um, as modern-day prophets. I mean, that's my opinion anyway. Some random thoughts.